Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a man who has a syndicated show, which is heard everywhere. His passport has been stamped more times than Carmen Sandiego. And <laughs> it is very fitting that this podcast is recorded the day before Valentine's Day. So fellas, be sure you have everything correct and make sure that the music on this show is there to set your mood for tomorrow night. And he appeared on Shark Tank. So we're going to get into all that radio, streaming, and then some with the one, the only, Mr. R-Dub. R-Dub, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover. Hey, Drill. Thanks so much for having me, man. I was really, really looking forward to this. So we're going to have a great time today. Yes, sir. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to come on to the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. So what made you want to say, I want to get into this crazy business known as radio? Really two things. I had I had two loves at a very early age. My first love was was talking, in, especially in class, and trying to, you know, get people's attention and say jokes and make people laugh. And, and um, you know, I always, and I was always getting in trouble for it. But I love being the, the center of attention when I was a kid. And, I mean, we're talking... I think this developed probably in kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And uh, uh, so that's number one. I, I loved entertaining people and making people laugh and think and talk. And number two, I had, I, and I still do, I shouldn't say had, but an immense love for R&B and hip hop music came to me when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And um, uh, I, I just, it was a, it still is a lifelong love, something that I'm absolutely in love with and, and impassioned with. So one day I realized that there is actually a job that takes both of my addictions, puts them together, lets me do both, and actually maybe even pays me for them. You know, at the time I was getting, I was getting in trouble for talking in class. I would always get sent home with a note or get suspended or end up in the principal's office. And I would always end up broke because I was spending my last dime at the record store buying CDs and, and cassettes. So, so far, my two loves weren't really paying off. And I realized one day that there's actually a job that can pay me for those, those loves. So uh, early on, I think I was 13 years old when the light bulb went on and I said, that is it. I'm going to work in radio no matter what it takes. All right. Now, I'm sure Warehouse, Camelot, Willie's, Blockbuster Music knew you by name because you were spending your allowance money on CDs or cassettes. I really miss, I mean, downloads are great, but I really miss the record store. And my ver I remember my very, my two first singles that I ever bought, my two cassettes that I ever bought was one was at Kmart called, um, the record was called out, I Want to Be Rich from Callaway. And then the other one, the second one was LL Cool J with Around the Way Girl. That was the second cassette single I bought. But man, you name it. You, and you named all those record stores, uh, Peaches, Coconuts, uh, of course, The Warehouse. You know, back in the day, even um, places like uh, Montgomery Ward and, and uh, um, uh, all these, you know, just kind of like even clothing department stores had their own little section of music. And then, of course, you had the mom and pop record stores. You had some really cool uh, mail order record stores. There was one uh, one mail order uh, company I used to order in the back of a hip hop magazine. I want to say they were upstairs records. And then there was one out of Brooklyn. But uh, yeah, man, that's a 
that's a lost art that, that kids these days will, you know, probably unfortunately never know. No, the art of crate digging, because I started my CD collection through Columbia House, where it was like 12 yes. CDs for a penny. <laughs> and a lot of my friends who are DJs said, thankfully for those Walmart and Kmart rap singles, cassettes, or CDs, they had the clean versions of records that they were able to play them at parties. But, you know, that's an art that is lost going to a record store, finding what album you wanted. And then if you got in real good with the owner, they maybe will slide you a friendly discount. Yeah. You know, I will tell you the one thing, there's a few things I like about, you know, modern technology and modern times, but I searched for years in multiple states and cities and record stores trying to find of uh, an amazing remix of Tony, 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 It Never Rains in Southern California. And I went to New York and LA and I, I mean, talking about digging in the crates, I couldn't find it anywhere. And then one day this thing called, this is before Amazon, uh, this, th this website called eBay came about. And I remember searching on eBay for these, for a couple of singles, a couple of special songs that I could not track down, but I, I really wanted. And I remember overnight just typing in the name and hitting submit and all of a sudden seeing some dude and, you know, uh, New Jersey or uh, Wisconsin has this CD single with the remix that you wanted. And uh, I remember my life changing. So there's been, you know, we've had to let go of some things. We've had to let go of some older ways, some old school ways. But I think we've ushered in some some new things that are pretty cool as well. So I try to I try to look at both sides uh, as, you know, I, I I'm nostalgic. I miss the old school. But, um, you know, the stuff that uh, we can do today, I think is pretty cool as well. Right. And sadly, being from the South, I never had a chance to go visit Tower Records, but I watched the documentary All Things Must Pass, which was yeah. by Colin Hanks, Tom Hanks' son. And it made going to Tower Records an experience. I mean, you had Elton John literally closing the store for his own personal use. Uh, you know, it, it, it was and it did. And 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 those are those are amazing times that, uh, you know, unfortunately will never come back. But there's the good thing is there's still some cool mom and pop uh, record stores. You didn't ask this question, but I feel it's 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 a great time to tell you this, be, just because I thought it was so interesting. I was in the um, European country of Estonia in October. Estonia is in the Baltic, so it's I believe it's just south of Finland. Uh, it's next to Lithuania and Latvia. Now, look, Estonia. Like you hear the word Estonia, what do you think? Castles and and cobblestone roads. There was this little record store in downtown Tallinn in the middle of old Estonia, sandwiched between the old churches and the old castles. And this thing literally, literally was like a stone cave. And I saw the, the sign on the door that said, you know, Tallinn Old Records. I said, record store, this is cool. So I ducked in there. I was amazed. I was, mind was blown at the selection of funk and deep 70s and 80s funk they had from, from uh, mass production, delegation, Patrice Russian, um parliament i mean they had they had so many so many selections of deep funk r&b and soul and this was not new york this was not chicago or new jersey or dallas this was estonia it just blew my mind so it goes to show you that people have a love of all kinds of music all over the place and you know you can't stereotype a uh, even a country like estonia those those people know their funk music yeah, you really found a lot of jewels crate digging overseas, so much so that some DJs would probably tell the owner outright, I'll pay you X amount of dollars for your whole inventory. Right, absolutely. Right, now I was doing my research on you. You spent some time growing up in between uh, LA and Orlando and then ended up going to Tucson. Now, how did that 
end up happening for you? And how did you get on Power 1490? I was really lucky because I've got, I, I was able to live in, in some different cities throughout my life and have some great experiences, some life experiences, and then as well as, as some different radio experiences and really listening to good radio. So I was born in Chicago and I discovered some amazing stations in Chicago when I would go back and, and visit my relatives there. So Chicago had great radio. LA had great radio. I first discovered the quiet storm when I moved to Orlando, Florida, completely by accident. I was 13 years old. I didn't even know what I really didn't even know what a slow jam was. And I turned on the radio trying to find, you know, the pop music station in town. And I accidentally stumbled on the quiet storm from the local radio station. And the very first song that I heard was a song from the group Troop called All I Do Is Think Of You. And I remember the song and the lyrics to the song meant so much to me. It, 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 it sounded, it felt exactly the way I felt about this girl in seventh grade that I had a crush on. And I couldn't believe this song was like everything going on in my head. And then the next song and the next song and the next song. So I discovered the quiet storm in Orlando, Florida at 13 years old. And that's pretty much when I decided, Hey, this is what I want to do for a living. When I get older, when I moved to Tucson, Arizona, I was only 15 and something so magical about that town. All, all of my dreams came true almost instantaneously. And I was able to get a job in the industry that first summer. So at 15 years old, my first job was a, a mobile DJ for an entertainment company. And by the time I was 16 years old, I had a shift at the radio station. And there was a really, really cool station in Tucson at the time called Power 1490. This was 1992. So right, this was the 90s. Nobody listened to AM radio for music anymore. Everything had already shifted to FM. And I remember searching the FM dial in Tucson and being very very disappointed, very depressed. There was no station that played hip hop and R&B in Tucson. And I remember saying, gosh, man, this, I really, it was a time in my life where, where I, I loved music more than I think ever before when I was, when I was 15 years old. And I, I, there was nothing on FM. There was just nothing. There was, there was rock, there was pop, there was country, no hip hop or R&B. And I was really disappointed. Well, a few days later, I don't know what I was doing on the AM dial, but I was scanning the AM dial and I nearly fell over when I heard a tribe called Quest on AM. And I single-handedly myself discovered this radio station. It was a commercial station, but for many of us, it was almost like an underground radio station called Power 1490. And this was way before social media. I didn't really know anybody. I just moved to town. So I would have never known, but literally by accident, I found Power 1490. It was an incredible radio station. Like I said, it was, even though it was commercial, it was, it, it had a definitely had an underground feel to it. And that was my first job. So I got hired at Power 1490 to do some part-time work. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was the full-time night guy at Power 1490. And we had so much fun. And so many people from Power 1490 went on to have amazing, just amazing careers. My program director, Bruce St. James, ended up going to Power 106 in L.A. Uh, my other program director, Boogie D, is in Kansas City. And he's worked in Philly and New York and all these amazing places. Um, the guy that came on in the afternoon's name was Gary the Sandman. He is the morning show for K-Rock in Los Angeles and many other people as well. So we had, so, we had, we were just kids at the time. We were literally high school and college kids. And most of us went on for, to, to do really, really big things. And it all started at Power 1490. By the way, there's a movie that I produced. It's a documentary about Power 1490. And if you search for it on YouTube, it'll come right up. 
Yeah, I saw the documentary refreshing because it's been a while since I've seen it. But what I found interesting about how Power 1490 came about was it was the cloud, which was the AC station that was owned by the same company that owned Power 1490 at the time. They felt that the pop station was a little bit too broad in their selection where they would day part. For those of you that don't know, radio lingo day part means you'll play certain songs within certain sections of the day. So it'll be soft and mellow during the day and it maybe be more youth oriented around night. But what I found interesting about Power was that it was a strong presentation, even though it was on the AM signal and it didn't dawn on upper management that, hey, this station would work on an FM stick because we have University of Arizona right there and we're attracting this young demo and numbers and sales for albums by certain artists in our region are going through the roof. It's very, it's very perceptive that you mentioned that. A lot of people who watch the movie, they either didn't pick up on that or they didn't, you know, they didn't really, they didn't care about it or they didn't think it was, it was, it was a great point. But it's amazing that you, you, you picked up on that. Yeah, so Power 1490, even though it was a, a dope station and ended up being one of the top stations in town, was merely created, as, a, as, as you mentioned, as a defense mechanism to protect the big FM adult contemporary station in the, uh, in the, in the building. They thought that, you know, their competition was KRQ. So they said, well, if we put some, some AM hip hop station on the AM dial, maybe we could, we could lure KRQ away into, you know, keeping off, keeping off the AC station that we have and, and concentrating more on the kids. So, uh, I mean, it's even hard for me to explain, but yeah, when you watch the documentary, it talks about that. And it's really interesting that you picked up on that. I'm really glad you did. Yeah. Working in radio, I know the ins and outs, and I got sort of a 1580 K-Day vibe when listening to a lot of those power 1490 air checks. Absolutely. Of course, K-Day was an amazing station. And I hear they're making a documentary on K-Day. I'm good friends with Greg Mack, uh, who put K-Day on. And um, that's a, that's an amazing story as well. Yeah, very dope. I had a chance to interview Greg Mack a couple of years ago on my college station. And this was back during the time, for those of you that don't know, when a lot of the big stations would segregate rap to either be only on at nights, overnights, or on weekends doing specialty mix shows to where it wouldn't affect their ratings. But what upper management didn't know until years later that this is your moneymaker because to hear about when you guys would go out and do remotes, you guys would get a ton of reaction, feedback, and people were just saying like, man, what is this station? How can we get more of this? I mean, you had Maximum T drive all the way up to California to get a sponsorship from St. Ives to sponsor mm -hmm. the Wrap It Up show. Yeah, absolutely. Those were such such good times. And it was cool because hip hop was just bubbling, bubbling under and, and the, the, the mainstream media never took it seriously. And the people you know, the pioneers like Greg Mack and some of the people that put power 1490 on, they were, they were trailblazers. And, um, you know, for many, many, many years, we were, I don't want to say the word discriminated. Look, people, people who own radio stations and who own businesses, it, it, they, they call the shots, they do whatever they want to do, but they, they underestimated the mass appeal of hip hop. And they thought it was only for thugs, only for certain ethnicities. And now what's interesting now, if you want to talk about the hip hop format, now you have all these all these these new radio stations, you know, over the past five years, launching the classic hip hop format, and you know they're they're capitalizing on how big hip hop was in the '90s and the early 2000s, and they've they've come a lot they've come a long way, and they understand that it's not just music for black and brown people, 
it's for everybody. Um, and, 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 you know, white soccer moms listen to Coolio, you know, when they were going to high school and listen to NWA. So I'm glad we finally broke through that, uh, you know, that ceiling. Right. And I found it interesting that when Power 1490 launched, that this was way before Hot 97 out of New York made the transition from being a dance oriented mm -hmm. radio station to hip hop. And I believe that consulting work was done by Steve Smith. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Steve Smith. Yep. Right. And because of your documentary, that was my first time hearing of Lighter Shader Brown, because once again, oh, I grew up in North Carolina and I'm sure Lighter Shade was probably get heavy airplay out on the West Coast and in the Southwest. So I'm sure it was a lot harder for them to break out inside of those two regions. It's amazing. I'm a huge fan of that group. And if someone or if anyone's listening that doesn't know that group, you should YouTube them. I mean, they are Google them. They're a huge, huge group, but they were very regional. They were very, very Chicano, Mexican-American, very West. So, you you know, we play them up and down the coast of California, Arizona, maybe New Mexico, maybe West Texas. But once you start getting east of east of El Paso, they didn't really they didn't really hit the way they did on, on the West Coast. But they're I mean, they're huge out here. And um, and still one of my favorite groups of all time. They've they've got some really really good music and very, very unique. There's uh, there's nobody no one else like Lighter Shade of Brown. Right now, since back during that time, since radio and hip hop was regionalized, were you all kind of talking to people from other radio stations across the country to, to kind of feel like, okay, what are your plan? What are your plan? What's this sounds like? What's that sound like? And kind of trading to kind of see like what's the new sound that's going to be coming. Absolutely. And, you know, that's always been part of it. And I was not the program director or, or even the music director, but I was able to at certain times sit in on music meetings and, and the radio station read all the trade magazines. And I know when we would have music meetings, our program director, Bruce Jane James, would introduce a song to the staff and then he would say stuff like, hey, they're playing this at Power 106 in L.A. or they're playing this at Power 92 uh, or they're playing this at, um, you know, uh, you know, whatever, whatever the, the other big radio stations were, you know, Wild 107 in San Francisco. So so absolutely, definitely. And there's there's always been networking in, in radio, uh, but especially back then you had a group of really, really, really amazing brands of rhythmic stations all across the West. That included uh, Bakersfield, Fresno. Um, uh, I mentioned Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, Z90, which is a station on, that I work for now here in San Diego. We had a network. So yeah, all of those program directors and radio stations, we looked at you know what was working for each other and, and we kind of used that as our research. Right. So what was that pitch like going to um, Bruce St. James for Slow Jams? Well, the station was already doing Slow Jams four nights a week, Monday through Thursday. And I want to say it, it was at 11 o'clock or midnight. It was really late. It was only, I believe it was one hour a night. It was actually a really cool show. So we, I think at 10 o'clock we do wrap it up, which was a hip hop show. And we, it was a one hour of specialty hip hop music. So we would play MC8 and we'd play Rap and Forte and we'd play Outcast when, you know, nobody else was playing Outcast. It was a really great show. And then we went straight into the Power 1490 Slow Jam. And the Slow Jam was just a really successful show as well. And I remember, you know, the hip hop show did good. People enjoyed it. But I remember at 11 o'clock when it was time for the slow jam, the phone lines would light up and all of a sudden you would have just hundreds and hundreds of calls, mostly from females, but from the guys, too. And they were just so serious about it. They wanted to make a dedication to their loved one. They wanted to send out boys to men. They wanted to to tell their their man or woman how much they loved him and they cared about him. And it was it was it was a very emotional connection. It was a very engaging show. 
but it came on really late on the weeknight. And, and so my pitch was, hey, let's do a longer version of that on Sunday called Sunday Night Slow Jams. So, I mean, really, and I tell people this all the time who, who give me way too much credit. The idea was was never mine. The, idea, the only idea I had is, is for this particular radio station, let's do it on Sundays for four hours. But, you know, the quiet storm had long existed way before even Power 1490 went on the air. But but that specific show, Sunday Night Slow Jams, was was my idea. And and uh, I, I presented it to Bruce St. James. And I still have the note on yellow legal pad paper uh, scribbled on handwriting that he put in my box. This was before email. And he basically said, R-dub, the Sunday Night Slow Jam is yours. Don't mess it up. And he gave me a chance to do the show. At eight o'clock, which brought slow jams to more people than it would at, you know, 11 o'clock on a weeknight. And from there, that was its start. And it, you know, slowly, slowly, you know, started making steam, started picking up steam. And uh, it wasn't long before really was it was out of control locally and the ratings were just monster. And I ended up moving to a different radio station after Power 1490 changed format. And now I was on FM and I was doing the same show and it just continued to grow and grow and grow and really really grow a home in Tucson, Arizona. Right. And the sad thing about when power went off the air, I believe it was 95 when formats flipped, that it was two years before University of Arizona won the national championship in men's basketball with Miles Simon, Jason Terry, Mike Bibby, and those guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I thought it really would have been cool had power would have lasted a little bit longer. So that way you guys could have soaked in them winning the national title for men's basketball. That would have been huge. One of the um, one of the parts of the movie talk about the company we worked for bought a new FM signal. So we only had it was just us and and the uh, the uh, the AC station on FM. The radio station company bought a third FM signal on one hundred four point one, and we all thought, why don't why aren't they putting Power fourteen ninety on this FM signal? This we do so good as an AM station. Why wouldn't they put us on FM? It was never their plans. They would have never done it. In hindsight, it would have been huge for them. They would have been, they would have brought in so so many ratings. They would have absolutely demolished KRQ. But it wasn't in the cards. And I'm actually glad. It, in hindsight, I'm glad it didn't happen because I m- might not be doing what I'm doing now. You know, things, you know, they say everything happens for a reason. And I look back and I'm completely content with the way the way things happen. But had they have done that, it would it would have been unstoppable. And you're right. We would we would have been there for the final four victory and we would have been a big part of it. Right. And I found this out recently. I was watching the All the Smoke podcast with Matt Barnes and Stephen Jackson. Stephen Jackson said that he would have supposed to have been on that Arizona team. He was only there for, I think, maybe the first semester. But then reasons are another didn't finish. So he would have been on that national title team at Arizona. Incredible. Yeah, nuts. But before we get into more about your radio career, can we talk about real briefly the impact of Mr. Art LeBeau? Absolutely. So Art LeBeau is kind of like lighter shaded brown. Art LeBeau, for those who don't know, is is absolutely a, a West Coast treasure. But just like lighter shaded brown, you don't really hear about Art LeBeau, um, you know, really west of I'm sorry, east of Albuquerque. Art LeBeau, for those who don't know, Art LeBeau was one of the founding fathers and one of the pioneers of playing rock and roll on the radio. So kind of like, you know, every region, every big city has has their their pioneer, their their person that that is responsible for blazing the trail. So, 
you know, we can talk about Melvin Lindsay in Washington, D.C. He's he is the godfather of the quiet storm. You talk about Frankie Crocker in New York City. You talk about Greg Mack in the hip hop scene, you know, in the 80s and 90s in, in Los Angeles. And, you know, again, every big city kind of has their star. Art LeBeau is the, the pioneer and the founding father of literally playing rock and roll on the radio. And I hope I don't get any of these these facts and figures wrong. But one of the most amazing things about Art LeBeau is he's still in radio today and he's still playing songs for people of all ages. He was he's been doing it since the 50s. So, for example, my mom, listen, who's 80, my mom listened to Art LeBeau. When she was a kid growing up in Hollywood, growing up in Los Angeles, Art LeBeau would do, uh, he would host concerts in Los Angeles. He would host um, a drive-in broadcast, like at the, at the drive-in theater or the, you know, the, the, the drive-in um, uh, restaurants. He would, he would be doing his show live. And, and we're talking about the 50s. The interesting thing about Art LeBeau, and I mean, there's a million things I can tell you about him, but the interesting thing about Art LeBeau is he's still doing it now. So when you talk about somebody that's multi-generational, that has stand, you know, stood the test of time. You know, so many jocks, they've had their time. They, they do a great run, maybe 10, 20, 30 years. Art LeBeau has been on the radio since the 50s. He's now, I want to say he's 94, 95. He's still on the air five nights a week. He also, he gives so much love to the, specifically the Chicano community in the West Coast, Los Angeles, but other cities too, Phoenix, Tucson, Albuquerque. He's always shown love to to that demographic, the English-speaking Hispanic person who speaks English and Spanish, loves their music, loves their dedications. Now they, you know, loves loves their oldies. I mean, gosh, what else can we say about Art LeBeau? He he owns a lot of records as well. He owns a lot of publishing. Um, he's he's just an and he's just an interesting guy, and I consider him a very good friend of mine. There uh, there was a time where we hated each other. He hated me. I didn't like him. I, I worked for him in the uh, in the nineties. We just we just didn't get along. But you know what? People grow up, people mature. Uh, I look at art now. I'm so happy to know him. I'm happy to work with him. And on my Sunday show, I like to think that I take a little bit from all of my favorite DJs, a little bit from from everyone, from Kevin James to Mike Hudson to uh, Robert Morgan and all, all these amazing Quiet Storm hosts. And I really loved Art LeBeau's model of this big Sunday night show that he did. And the fact that he incorporated different cities. So I remember listening to Art LeBeau when I was 18. And I was I was doing slow jams at the time, but I would hear his show, which is not necessarily a slow jam show. It's more of an you know, like an oldie show. But I would hear his show, and I thought it was so cool that people were calling in from Riverside, California, and Tucson, Arizona, and you know, Los Angeles and Bakersfield. He was connecting people, especially people that had girlfriends and boyfriends and a family in different cities. And I always thought that was so cool. And I wanted to do that on my show. I wanted to connect some people. And the fact that we're on over 200 radio stations now is mind blowing. And I, I do, I get, I get some of my inspiration and some of my ideas from Art LeBeau. He's definitely a pioneer and just give him so much respect. Mm, Art LeBeau, a legend, and you know the term oldie but goodies. He trademarked that. And when I first moved out to New Mexico, I lived in Albuquerque for a year. And that was where I first got introduced to Art LeBeau. And then a lot of the music that he would play, I necessarily wouldn't hear in the South. And once again, that just goes to show you the variety and the specialization of radio depending on what region you're in because you mentioned earlier how power was playing outcast when it was probably hard for them to break west of the mississippi 
Absolutely. And, and going back to when you when you would listen to Art LeBeau, you know, there are there are people who aren't from the West Coast. You know, maybe they're from Chicago, maybe they're from New York, maybe they're from, you know, the South. Right. Whether the radio people or not, sometimes they'll hear Art LeBeau and they'll tell me they'll, they'll tell other people like, what, what, you know, what, what is this guy? He's awful. He's terrible. Or, or they don't understand it. It's one of those things like, dude, you, you're right. You don't understand it because it's 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 a it's a West Coast thing. So, you know, if you listen long enough, you will understand it. And he's not a traditional DJ. You know, he's not he's not the smoothest, nor am I. But I mean, he's not he's not like the quiet storm people from the South or from Chicago. You know, um, dude, he's Art LeBeau. He's a 95 year old, short, old man, you know, um, but people love him and he's genuine and he loves the community and they love him back. So the whole thing's very special. And, and he's, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, thousands of DJs that all sound the same and all do the same thing. And then there's someone like Art LeBeau who is just, he is in a, a league of his own. And I think that's what makes radio special. I think there needs to be more people that do things differently and stand out. Right. So you transition from power 1490 onto the big boy stage over on the FM dial. What was that transition like? It was great. We, uh, we, I actually went to 98.3 and worked for Art LeBeau for a little bit in Tucson. We did not get along. And so I, I hatched a plan and a plot with one of my, one of my friends at the radio station. We went across the street and we started our own station called power 97.5. And so now we're on FM and I brought slow jams there. It was a smaller station. Uh, but then after Power 97.5, I went to this the huge station, KRQ, which is mentioned in the Power 1490 document, a documentary. And KRQ is, was just the, this large, larger than life, huge top 40 pop radio station, 100,000 watts. Everybody knew KRQ, but they were also pretty vanilla. They were a pop station. So at the time they were playing Goo Goo Dolls and Third Eye Blind. Maybe they were playing like Will Smith getting jiggy with it you know, next too close, but then they were playing, you know, Alanis Morissette and the Backstreet Boys. So, you know, really would slow jams really fit on a station like that? Well, not really, but I convinced the program director, Tim Richards, who is a dear friend of mine. I convinced him to, to let me do Sunday night slow jams on KRQ. And it's amazing that he let me do it because again, it's not, it's not a type of show that was really ever on a pop radio station back then. And we did it. And in one ratings book, we were number one. And I remember he called me in to give me the news and I thought I was in trouble. And he showed me the ratings and we were number one after one ratings book. And we took it to some, some incredible number that we'd never seen before. And it, it just continued. So to, to be able to have the show on such a, such a huge radio station and reach so many people, it's the difference between going from like a, a little league team to the major league, you know, overnight, all of a sudden you're in front of so many more people and you have such a bigger arena. Uh, it was, a, it was another, just another blessing of my life. Right. And putting slow jams on that station, going in the book when you necessarily felt that it wouldn't necessarily fit the format. It must've been gratifying for you saying that, Hey, this can work. It is. And, and it's, it's a testament, honestly, sh saying that, look, if, if you're female, because the, the station targeted females, if you're female, you, you know, if you're if you're a regular female, I'm not going to try to generalize every female, but females love slow jams, right? They they're the, the songs connect them to special times in their lives, whether it's their first boyfriend, the first kiss, you know, their first husband or their first breakup. You know, it's always emotional. And, you know, when you talk about these you know, giant slow jams like Boys to Men, End of the Road, or Key Sweat Twisted, 
I mean, every female, young or old, knows those songs and um, they're powerful. And those songs in a show where people are allowed to call in and, and request and dedicate and send messages, you know, it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to show that that is that show will be important to your average female listener. And I'm just I'm, I'm just so grateful and so happy that it was able to transcend onto such a big radio station like KRQ. Mm-hmm. And can you explain to us the process of taking the show into syndication? Did you have to provide proof of numbers and ratings to the various syndicators and do a demo reel? Um, yes and no. So it really started by accident. It started because the show had now been on in Tucson for many years. And, um, you know, I guess kind of the word had, had gotten out that I, I'm this, this kid in Tucson that does a slow jam show. And people and friends and acquaintances and radio colleagues had told me and suggested, they said, you know, RW, you should, you know, you should syndicate the show. You should, you should put the show nationally. But that's the same thing. I'll compare that to, you know, a local rapper and his family telling him, you know, well, you should, you should have a record deal. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, oh, that's nice. But you're just saying that because you know me, right? Um, I, I, I knew at the time and still today, I don't have a voice like Melvin Lindsay. I don't have a voice like Kevin James. I don't have a voice like Robert Morgan and, and, and uh, Mike Hudson and, and uh, Kevin Nash and all these, all these amazing, um, you know, major market, uh, Mel Devon is another one, major market uh, quiet storm hosts. They all had this huge, amazing, thunderous voice of God. I've never had that voice. So I, I always told myself, or I always, when, when people suggested that I syndicate the show, I always cut them off. Nope. There's just no way you see what I'm saying. It's, it's kind of like if you're, if you're an okay basketball player and someone's going to be like, you should go to the NBA. It's like, are you serious? Like I'm, I'm, I'm nothing like those players. So I never had plans to syndicate just by accident, just by chance, two program directors at the very same time asked me if I would provide a generic version of my show, meaning a show that, you know, wasn't, wasn't exactly local, wasn't, wasn't too Tucson centric. They wanted to know if, if I could put together a, a generic version of the show that would air on their radio stations. And at the exact same time, I was building a radio studio in my house. So you can say the stars kind of aligned. And I thought, well, this would kind of be cool. I would be on in Tucson and I would be on in two other cities. Uh, one city was um, another city in Arizona and the other city was Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I just thought it would be cool. I'm like, well, this is kind of a neat thing to do. Let's 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 try it out. Now, I had no clue if the show would have any success at all in somewhere like Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, like Art LeBeau, my show was very Hispanic centered. And I targeted people in Tucson. I targeted Latinas. You know, in my average listener was, you know, 24 years old and her name was Lupita. And she she was a Hispanic from Tucson. So, you know, my question was, wow, I, I don't know if this will work in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But let's give it a try. And after one ratings book, once again, it was a massive, massive, massive hit. And I still have the voicemail from the program director calling me saying, oh, my God, what happened on Sunday is incredible. This is this is amazing. So there was no syndication deal in the beginning. It was simply me sending the show out on CD to a couple of different radio stations. And once we got good ratings back from our first station in Tulsa, it was very my approach was very rudimentary. I would just pick up the phone and I would just call other program directors in other markets and say, Hey, do you want to, you want to run the show? It, it won't cost you anything. You don't have to sign a contract. And I would send them the show every week. And the same story that happened in Tulsa with those ratings happened on the second station and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. 
And I'll never forget one of the milestones or one of the turning points in my career was our sixth radio station. And that was Anchorage, Alaska. And when they told me they were going to run my show in Anchorage, Alaska, I remember telling myself, I said, okay, all right. If this thing works in Anchorage, if my show gets good, good, gets really good ratings like everywhere else, if it explodes like everywhere else in Alaska, this may be a career for me because it's, it's Alaska. Like to me, Alaska was like another planet, right? And sure enough, uh, to date, we've had our highest ratings in Anchorage, Alaska, something like a 67 share, just bananas. And, um, and, and Anchorage, Alaska means a lot to me because that was the station and the market that made me realize, hey, man, this, this, is, this may work. This may be your thing. And uh, so I'm very, very happy to have that opportunity. Right. And I'm curious to know how long on a typical day or week does it take you to produce a full syndicated show, like three or four hours? And then also the additional things you have to do, like liners and various other things for your affiliates. I've never, you know, I've never sat down and calculated exactly how many hours and minutes. I will tell you, I work on it seven days a week, almost 15 hours a day. I mean, it's it's nonstop. It never stops. I love it. Um, but it's hard to quantify. I'm just always working on it. If I'm not in the studio, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm visiting an affiliate, um, or I'm, I'm planning a promotion or I'm sending out an email to our listeners or making a video or on social media. So it's literally not, it's like having a child. It's nonstop. Art of eats radio for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Exactly. Yeah. Just picture like that old commercial for total where you have all those bowls of cereal stacked up. That's how Art Up consumes radio. Eat, sleep, breathe, and you got to go all in all the time. Now, you worked alongside I'll Be Sure at one point in time, correct? Absolutely. What was that experience like working with Al? Because he has the voice for radio, and I'm not sure if anybody told him that prior to going into the business that, hey, you could do radio or voiceover work. You know, he'd done some radio earlier, and and it, it – it bears mentioning that I am, and I'll, I'll always, I'll challenge anybody. I'm the biggest I'll be sure fan in the world. There is no bigger I'll be sure fan than me. I, I think he is, he is amazing in every way in his, in his production, in his lyrics, in his, his songs. He's the nicest guy ever. But as a kid, I would send uh, fan letters to I'll be sure. I mean, I had posters of I'll be sure in my room. So you have to understand like literally I'm his biggest fan. Like I'm, I'm Stan, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm just gushing over Albie Shore. And as a kid, it was, it was my dream just to meet him. Like, man, if I ever had the chance to meet Albie Shore or take a picture with Albie Shore, that would be the best day of my life. And radio has just treated me so well. When I arrived in Los Angeles, one of my first messages on my voicemail was from Albie Shore. And he'd done some radio before um, for, I think, ABC Radio Networks. He'd done uh, some, some syndicated stuff, and he was currently not doing radio, and he was living in L.A., and he wanted to work for our radio station in L.A. And, and I'm like, what? So I, I re remember I took him out to lunch, and I actually felt kind of bad because he wanted to talk about working for me, and I just I wanted to ask him all these questions about, about songs and, hey, what did this lyric mean, and what did you mean here? And, well, let me tell you why, you know, why this song means so much to me. I was a complete fanboy. We ended up hiring Al for uh, my radio station and he worked for me i was his program director and he worked for me as the midday talent he's phenomenal on the air he did he did an amazing job and it was it was great being able to work with him and we became friends and we're friends to this day you won't meet a nicer guy he is such a good personable kind just a beautiful soul so when you find someone that 
you love their music so much and then you meet them and they're 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 just as nice, you know, because I've, I've met a few celebrities and their music's great. But as people, eh, you know, whatever, dude, Al is he is one of the best. Right. And you mentioned writing letters. And this is back in the days, people, when artists used to have fan clubs where they'll probably give you a publicity shoot photo autograph write you a nice little pre-stock letter and the way you were fanboying over Albie while doing lunch trying to pitch to him uh working for you I felt the same way when I had a chance to interview Donnie Simpson years ago for my podcast how that happened was I was in college at the time doing my college radio show and he was still on his former radio station in DC and the only way I could get him was after his morning show so I literally skipped my English class to interview Donnie Simpson. And I was trying my hardest to contain myself, but he was just so warm, so humble. And that's the thing about being in this business and having the chance to interview a lot of people who I grew up listening to and saying one day, and to say that I've done that and that they're impressed with everything. It just goes to show you that you know your stuff and you come humble, You they'll, they'll respect you. That's great to hear. And and I've never had the pleasure of meeting, meeting Donnie in person, but I've heard great things about him. And yeah, what a, uh, you know, we, we were talking about legends like Art LeBeau. Donnie Simpson is a legend. And uh, and yeah, he's someone I'd love love to meet someday. But his uh, his persona on air and TV is just, uh, it, he's, he's phenomenal in, in every way. Yeah, and just got inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. So big up to uh, Donnie Simpson. And then also want to let you guys know I had a chance to interview another legend in radio recently uh mr shadow stevens and uh, oh wow that was, how was that, that? Was, that was that was really cool very um humble and i was surprised that he even agreed to do the interview on my podcast to be honest with you because like you it's amazing yeah like you um i grew up listening to walt baby love watching donnie simpson don Cornelius, and i want to be like these guys and i don't necessarily have the classic radio voice but you know, I've been doing this since 18 years old and the podcast space and broadcasting and, and it's just been, you know, a wonderful ride that is going to continue to keep going. Absolutely. Amen. And how did you end up going on Shark Tank? My mom introduced me to the show Shark Tank and she said, uh, Randy, there's a show I, I think you'll you'll like. It's called Shark Tank. So you know, check it out. So I watched it and I, it became my, one of my favorite shows instantly. It's such an intelligent and really educational show. And it's one of the few reality shows that's, that's actually educational. You'll actually learn from it, especially if you have, uh, you know, any, any desire to ever go into business by yourself. You just pick up so much from the show. So I watched the show a couple of seasons and I, and I loved it. There's one thing I noticed about the show. I noticed that there was kind of a repeat of the same kind of products going on. For example, maybe every few weeks or every couple of months, there would be someone pitching a, you know, a cupcake recipe or, or, or a cake or some donuts or something like that. And as a viewer, I said, hmm, they're kind of, you know, kind of repeating some of the same products. As a program director, as a producer of a, a radio show and a radio station, I put myself in the producer's position and I said, you know what? I'm sure they're looking for something different. And I don't think they've ever had anyone pitch them a radio show. 
So let me get online. Let me apply for Shark Tank online. So I went to their website and I applied online. I did not go to a cattle call in person, like at the mall where you have to stand in line for two hours. None of that silly stuff. I went straight to their website and there was an application form. And I really, 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 I thought crafted a really good uh, pitch for them. And I remember, I remember taking so much time. I don't remember if it was a, you know, 300 or 500 word limit, but there was obviously a limit. And I remember crafting my pitch almost like I was writing a commercial spot or a commercial promo or a trailer to a movie. I wanted to make sure it was perfect. And so I basically pitched my slow jam show and I said, look, you know, this is what I do. This is what, why I want to pitch the sharks. And I think one of the things that attracted them is I offered to bring a celebrity on. I said, Hey, I'm going to bring at the time I was going for boys to men. I said, I'm going to bring boys to men on the show to serenade the sharks. And I, I clicked submit and didn't think much more about it. Didn't really think I'd hear from them. I think they get about 40,000 submissions a year. And lo and behold, I, I heard from them. They called me once they started casting a few months later. And uh, long story short, I ended up on Shark Tank. And it was one of the best days of my life. There's a few, few days that are specific. Lee, I, I remember them as the best day of my life. And that's one of them. I'll never forget, forget my day on Shark Tank. Fun fact, I was in the tank. I was pitching the Sharks for 47 minutes and they do an amazing job editing everything down. And I think my final pitch was edited down about six minutes, but I was in there for 47 minutes and I really had a good time. And my, my two goals of getting on the show, uh, neither of the goals had anything to do with getting a deal. I honestly, I didn't care if I got a deal or not. My two goals were number one, I wanted to give some publicity to the show. I wanted to pitch the show uh, on national TV. You know, you can't you can't pay for an infomercial that valuable, you know, to be on ABC on a, a Friday night in front of, you know, millions of people. So that's number one. And then number two, I wanted to escape the Shark Tank without being clowned. You know, they they will they will clown some people. They will make fun of some people. They will they'll make some people, you know, turn to tears because they they will call you just a, a horrible business person or tell you your idea is bad or make fun of you. I was really hoping I could get through the whole show without being made fun of. And they were really nice and super respectful. And I just, I really liked them. So there it is, man. It was an amazing day. Yeah. Cause I remember seeing that episode actually. And then also them doing the follow-up after being on the show. And when you get on the show, even if you don't get a deal, you win anyway. Oh, hundred percent. And uh, it's almost too bad. I, I didn't have like a, a product to sell in stores or online because the people that go on with, you know, cool idea that sell the product online, they, you know, their website will crash and they said, you know, they sell a million, a million widgets, you know, that first night. But I was, I was, again, I was happy for the experience. I was happy for the exposure. I really had a fun time. Trust me. My wife loves the show Shark Tank and she tries a lot of the products as seen on Shark Tank. So we watch yeah. that from time to time. And like you said, they'll cut you to shreds if your game's not tight. Yeah, exactly. I was so scared that was going to happen to me. By the way, I'm really not good at math too. So I was, I was afraid they were going to ask me about accounting and, you know, profit margins and gross and net, et cetera. Um, but we had, we just had, we had a great time. It was a blast. Don't feel bad. Math was my least favorite subject either. I'd be more like the P Diddy, the face, the sell the product. Now, speaking of, like I mentioned, you was, you're a world traveler and had your passport stamped more times than I can count. What was that experience like living abroad for a bit in Brazil? And did you notice any difference in music living abroad? 
Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it was such an educational experience and, and I, I'll recommend that everybody, if they ever have a chance to live abroad for so many different reasons, you know, you, you learn so much. I, I got in the best shape of my life. I didn't, uh, I didn't own a car, so I had to walk everywhere and I, I ate really clean. You know, there's really no such thing as, you know, TV dinners in, in Brazil. Everything's just kind of naturally organic. So um, I got in the best shape of my life. I learned Portuguese. Uh, I learned a lot. I mean, every day was a learning lesson. I produced my slow jam show from the beach, literally from looking out at the ocean. So that was fun. Um, I love Brazil. I still have a house there. I will go back. I'll always go back. Brazil lives in my heart. We could do a whole separate podcast about Brazil. It's an incredible place. And that includes the people and the language and the food. And I love Brazilian music. I love Bossa Nova music, Tom Jobim and, and, uh, and, and so many great Brazilian singers and, and jazz artists. Uh, I did miss America. I missed the U.S. a lot. Brazil sounds like paradise, and it really was in many ways, but I missed uh, so much about the U.S. I missed food. I missed the convenience of things. For example, they haven't, and this is a lot of countries, not just, not just Brazil. Many countries haven't grasped the speediness of good customer service. So, for example, you, could go to, you can go to Walmart in Brazil, and you could be waiting in line for like 90 minutes. They just go so slow. Or the bank. Going to the bank in Brazil at least for me, certain times was like going to the DMV. It was like going to the, the motor vehicle. You have a seat and you take a number. You could be there for two hours. Um, and I speci- going back to the grocery store, I specifically re- remember like the checkers, right? That are checking you out. They're just slow. They don't care. And that's, that's not just Brazil. That's, that's most places. Um, the U.S. has got this uh, efficiency and expedia thing down. They want you in and out and they are quick, quick, quick in every way, including restaurants and, uh, and, and stores. And in Brazil, a lot of other countries, they're, they're just not. Um, so yeah, man, you take a lot of things for granted living in, living in, uh, living in the U S and then you leave and you realize, wow, you know, I miss this, 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 and this. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was kind of a, you know, I, I had a new love for my country and realized how lucky that I am to be in America. And I feel that way, especially when I go other places, you know, Brazil's paradise, but there are some, there's some countries out there that, uh, you know, don't have the freedoms we have or have extreme poverty. Um, you know, one of the things I think we, we take for granted the most is, is as silly as it sounds, freedom of the press. When you go to all, you know, so many of these other countries, they do not have free expression. They can't protest. They can't write an article that criticizes the leader in the newspaper or, the, or, or do a radio show about it. They'll wind up missing the next day. You know, they'll, the, the soldiers will knock on their door 20 minutes later and you'll never see them again. So, you know, it's, it's, we, we've had a tough, tough last year in America, but uh, I'll tell you what, I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. This, this truly is the greatest country on earth. I, I always, always have believed that. And I believe it even more so now that, now that I travel so much. Mm, you mentioned that you get a different perspective when you travel abroad. Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, for our honeymoon, we went to the Bahamas on a cruise and to see how a lot of the locals depend on tourism as their bread and butter for how they live and how they work. And then when we were about to go eat at a local uh, fish fry off the beach, one of the drivers said, hey, it's around the corner. Come to find out, it was like maybe a 20, 30 minute walk and they were slow as molasses and bringing the food out. So it's interesting that you say how other countries, they didn't really get the memo about fast, speeding customer service, except if you go to Blake's Lotta Burger, you'll be sitting for a while waiting for a Blake's Burger because <laughs> okay. Blake's makes their stuff fresh. Nice, nice. Now, I want to get into the question as far as 
radio in today's current state because with the internet, social media, podcasting, it seems to be difficult for traditional radio to maintain the level of influence that it once had pre-social media where today's kids don't know the concept of waiting 15 to 20 minutes for a song. They can just go to Spotify, whatever streaming site they use, click, and they're there. So how does traditional radio find its way in the era of social media streaming and podcasting? I mean, you're completely right. When I started radio, I would walk in the studio and the phone lines, you know, all 10 lines would be blinking and people would just honestly call because they wanted to hear a song. It's the only way they could hear the new song from Snoop Dogg, you know, unless they owned it, unless they went out and, and paid for it. So you're right with uh, with all the streaming platforms, um, you know, I, I, radio is is more of a uh, less less of a necessity and more of a convenience for music. You turn it on and it's like turning on the water. It's there. And, you know, there's music. Um, I will say music wise, people do like to be surprised. And, and I enjoy listening to the radio because, you know, I could listen to my Spotify or Pandora or, or, or whatever my playlist. But I, sometimes I love the surprise that radio offers with music. Um, but to complement your point, uh, you know, I think radio just has to depend on on personalities and things that you cannot get online. You know, you can't get my show on Spotify. You can't get my show on a download. You can't hear people express themselves. You can't get a friend, you know, talking to you late at night, telling you things are going to be okay. You don't get any of that on streaming services. And there's so many other shows, whether it's, you know, whether it's, um, I mean, who, who do we talk about? You know, Howard Stern, who's on XM and, and, and Sirius, you know, he's, he's a host. People, people go to listen to him. There's plenty of other amazing hosts that are still on FM, FM radio, whether it's, you know, Art LeBeau or Delilah or, you know, some of these really, really good morning shows. We have an amazing, very, very funny morning show uh, here in San Diego on one of the radio stations that I manage. And these guys are hilarious. And and kids, kids will tune into the radio to hear Rick Morton and hear the games that they play and hear the uh, the funny stuff that they talk about. And so, um yeah, man, radio really has changed and people aren't going to run the radio just to hear music. But you've got, I think what radio does best is they have personalities that uh, you cannot duplicate. You can get a song anywhere, yes, but you can't get you can't get R-Dub or Art LeBeau or Kevin James or uh, Rick Morton, who does my mornings on, on Z90, Rick Party, um, you know, some of these, uh, you know, amazing talents. You can't get them on streaming, streaming services and streaming platforms. So I think... I think the divide will just continue. I think that that radio will go more for content and more, um, you know, more tangible uh, personalities that do things differently that you can't get anywhere else. Right. And the two things that radio did very well back when there was the dominant medium was that, A, it broke records because certain artists wouldn't be where they are if certain DJs or stations broke their records. And then two, certain DJs wouldn't be where they are today if it wasn't for getting that experience in that low to medium level market, getting their reps as the overnight jock. And then by the time they got to a bigger and better market, they were seasoned. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, because going to a small market radio station, you're going to learn how to do everything from board op, on air, traffic, sales, production. So by the time you get to a big market, you are going to be indispensable and they're going to love you for it. It's very challenging these days for someone to break into radio because there are less and less of those opportunities, especially the small markets. There are you know many radio stations that don't have don't have staffs anymore. And that part 
that part is really concerning and is is really sad. There's less of a training ground. So, uh, you know, I, I wish it wasn't that way. Uh, it's out of my control, but I, I try to do what I do to, to continue to help young people get in the business. But there, and, and I love, I love telling people they can do whatever they want to do and there's a million opportunities. But the truth is it's harder and harder because there are, uh, there are radio stations, there are complete radio stations in cities that don't have one person in the building because they're being managed and programmed and hosted, you know, from, from another city. So sadly, the opportunities for, for starting in local radio have really, really, really dried up. Right. And we pretty much kind of have the telecom app of 96 to kind of sort of blame for that, because when that came about, that opened up the floodgates for radio station companies to just gobble up radio stations everywhere and have it be one big monopoly. You hit the nail on the head. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. It's like Pac-Man. You're eating up all the dots and then the ghost just lights up and you're like, ow, 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 and you just eat, eat, <laughs> eat, eat, eat. And you got somebody in, let's say San Antonio, Texas, telling the station in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you're going to play this or station in Denver, right. Colorado, play this. And you're going to have your jock from Denver, Colorado, voice track for a station out in Abilene, Texas or Charlotte, North right. Carolina. It's pretty much almost like you're syndicating one station to all your different affiliates that you own. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Only difference is, is just the personalities that's there. So besides mm-hmm. slow jams, what are, of a current projects that you have out or working on at the moment that you can speak on? You know, um, Slow Jams is my main project. That's everything to me. That's my life's passion. Uh, I do work full-time for a local group of local radio stations that are, that I'm so proud of because they're, they're live and they're local. We're locally owned and operated and uh, we own uh, four amazing, amazing brands here in San Diego with, with talent and with, with a full staff and we care about the community. We get back to the community. So, you know, those are, I split time between those two things. Uh, what else? Uh, travel that I'm trying to see every country in the world. So there, there are 193 countries in the world and I'm trying to see all of them. And uh, so far I'm at 162. So I'm kind of rounding the corner. The, the end is in sight. So that's been a very, very exciting challenge and goal and overall experience over the past five years. And it, it has almost kind of, kind of given me a new, a new lust for life, um, not, I wouldn't at all say I'm burnt out of radio, but I'm seasoned, uh, you know, with radio. I've been doing radio since I was, you know, 15 years old. And that's, wow, that's 30, almost 30 years now, right? Um, and so uh, I love radio, but it's not, radio is not new to me anymore. And and traveling and really going out there and, 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 and exploring Africa and the Middle East and Asia, that's all new to me. So it almost felt like it's a brand new lease on life and opened up just so many new discoveries and new, new ways to learn and new smells and sights and, and, and tastes. It really, it, it feels like it's given me a whole new life. So traveling is, is one of, my, uh, one of my, my major loves now. If I had time, I would, I, would, I would find some work in the travel industry, but you know, radio is still my main bread and butter. I still love and enjoy radio, but maybe one day, you know, it's in the cards. Maybe we'll do some travel shows or some travel writing or, you know, some things like that. Right. Have a show on Travel Channel, R-Dub Travels. Now, before we wrap, I want to go back to Power really quick. The one thing that I really loved about what Power did was how you mentioned in the documentary how there's a cardinal rule in radio and being a former 
industry personnel, I know this, that you don't mention the competition, but you guys did in your liners and you guys were cutthroat about it. So what I found interesting was how you guys were able to find out a way to hijack their Marty when they were running their remote to where you guys were blasting. But it was just the way that you guys said, like, hey, these are the enemy. We are going to blast them every chance we get. We're not going to apologize for it. You know, um, you summed it up beautifully. You should never acknowledge your competition. But I, I think and in, in the, the thing that they mentioned in, on, in the documentary is if you are if you are such the underdog that you have nothing to lose. I mean, if you're literally at the bottom and in this case, we were on an AM signal. We had nothing to lose then absolutely you come out swinging and you name the competition, you name names, you call them out um, and you, you do, you do everything you can. Um, I'm trying to think if there's been other radio stations I've worked at that, that, that have done that. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever worked for a station that was so handicapped and limited by a signal, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we had nothing to lose. We were a bunch of kids. We knew nothing. We were on AM radio. Why not make fun of the big guy? And um Trying to think of who else does that. I know there's a few brands out there that, that do that, that kind of make fun of the big brand because they're the small brand. So, yeah, it was fun. It really was. And um, I don't think there's, enough, I don't think there's a, a better example of a radio, a classic radio war from the 80s and 90s and looking back uh, to Power 1490. So if you want to learn more about that, we actually have a full chapter in the movie that's all about the radio war and all of the things that we did to get under the skin of this station and it must have drove them crazy too because it worked and we bothered them and we took their listeners and we were an am radio station you know the station that people thought would never ever ever had a chance and we ended up beating them in, in some certain demos and some certain day parts so uh it was a fantastic learning lesson right and it just brought to mind to me that the strategy that the company with you guys used to distract your competition was similar to what Fox did with the Super Bowl in 92, where they counter-programmed against the halftime show by putting a live episode of In Living Color, and they had a timer to say, okay, we're going to be on for this long, and when this goes off, you can switch back to the game. And it was the year after that the NFL got wise and said, we need to be more current, and they got Michael Jackson to do halftime. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a great analogy, absolutely. And it paid dividends for Fox because Fox was still struggling to find its footing alongside the big three. Because even though they had the Simpsons, Tracy Ullman show, now no two and no, they were still trying to find their footing as a network. But in Living Color, along with shows like I mentioned earlier, the Simpsons, Tracy Ullman show, now no two and no, Married with Children, Cops, 21 Jump Street, helped put Fox on the map and establish them as a major player in the TV network game. Now, do you have any shout outs you want to give before we wrap this interview and also plug your social media? You know, if I, if I gave shout outs, it would be a, it would be a futile effort because there are so, so, so many people I would, I would want to name. I mean, really just everybody who's ever, ever believed in me and, and have, have given me an opportunity and there's too many to name. So really, I, I just want to shout out every single person in the industry that believes in radio and believes in music and believes in the the power of of communication and and giving back. And there's there's less and less of us left in the industry today as as corporations consolidate. And there's been a lot of layoffs over the past few years. And sadly, a lot of really good personalities 
you know, were forced out. They were forced to leave radio. So there's a really, there's a much smaller group of us. And I like to think that we are all a little bit more grateful and we are, we never, we never take for granted what we have, you know, back in the day, you know, it was common, a lot of us, including myself, you know, to be a little arrogant and a little cocky and, you know, think that, uh, you know, think that we're, you know, these great influencers and personalities, et cetera. And then you start watching this all kind of drop like flies when, when these, these companies consolidate and, and, and let go of people. So I think the people that are left, I think, I, I think they're, I think they're genuinely good people and they appreciate every single day. And, and I find myself with more appre- deeper appreciation and deeper gratitude every single day to be able to do what, what I, what I do and to be able to stay in the industry. So um, really just shout out to everybody that's in the industry that that's plugging away. That's working probably harder than they've ever worked before to stay relevant and to stay exciting. And um, you know, if I, if I can ever help in any way, you can reach out to me. The best way to get a hold of me is my website, which is slowjams.com. You know, it's funny. Sometimes people will, well, I'll, t- I'll get an email or a call from somebody and they'll say st- something like, man, I've been trying to get a hold of you for five years. And I'm thinking like, I'm the easiest dude to get a hold of. Like I respond to everybody. So you can get all my info, all my, uh, my email, my links, my social media accounts are all at slowjams.com. And Jarrell, I appreciate your podcast, man. You've had some um, amazing heavy hitters on your show. And I look forward to, uh, to binge, binge listening your podcast. Please do, and you can catch this interview with R-Dub wherever you stream your podcast. Just search Beyond the Album Cover. And on my YouTube channel of the same name, be sure to join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash Beyond the Album Cover to get everything updated with the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. R-Dub, host of Slow Jams, which you can hear wherever you hear your stuff. Go to slowjams.com, find out where you can hear it and download it. And thank you once again, R-Dub, for coming on to the podcast. Thank you, Jarrell. Let's do it again. Don't be a stranger. Yes, sir.